Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. Mayor Michael Hancock is one of the US's most known mayors. Having served Denver as an elected official for almost two decades, Mayor Hancock has seen perhaps the greatest transformation of any American city this century, with Denver exploding in growth, business and opportunity. Yet with that opportunity has come real challenges. Housing, transit, public safety. Yet while Mayor Hancock is the chief executive, he's under no illusion that these are his challenges to tackle alone. In this episode, we discuss the difference between a visionary and implementer leader, the most surprising aspects of being a major city mayor, and his thought process before using his veto powers for the first time. Please enjoy my conversation with Mayor Michael Hancock. Today, we head to the mountain state with a rich history, Colorado, specifically its capital and landmark city, Denver. Known as being a gateway to the beautiful Rocky Mountains, Denver is emblematic for outdoors, nature, and and unavoidably in recent years, cannabis. We have the privilege today to speak with Mayor Hancock, who has led the city since 2011. Mayor Hancock, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jack. Glad to be with you. I guess jumping straight into things, it's no secret Denver has been growing at an incredible rate in the past couple of decades. Just out of curiosity, are there any maybe less predictable or obvious challenges that come with this sort of growth that maybe may surprise our listeners? You know, it has been an amazing clip for Denver in terms of the population growth. We've seen really a 10% growth over the last 10 years. So over 100,000 people have moved into our city. It's been just amazing um, to watch it happen. Uh, Organically, it's occurred. But I think obviously things that occur that, uh, I mean, immediately, and you got to remember our growth happened after the Great Recession where there were a tremendous amount of foreclosures that occurred. Denver and the state of Colorado was one of the leading states in foreclosures during that time. And so there was a lot of upward pressure with the growth and the recessionary recovery occurring, a lot of upward pressure on housing. And a lot of people who had lost their homes were in apartments. And so you got young people in particular moving to Denver, looking for apartments. You know, you got people who are normally homeowners sitting in those apartments and we just hadn't been building homes because of the recession. And uh, so we had a lot of pressure. Uh, housing costs went through the, through the roof. Um, apartment costs went through the roof. And we you know, are doing everything we can to kind of speed up and try to get caught up. And it will be um, a long time before we ever catch up if we ever catch up. The other one, of course, are the little things that uh, you would expect. Um, traffic and congestion occurred, as well as, um, you know, rise in crime as part of that uh, overall trajectory. And this is all occurring at the same time of tremendous economic expansion. So, yeah, we're able to attract um, new industries and and very talented people. That's the upside. Um, It gives us a lot to market around the globe in terms of Denver's attractiveness because of its workforce talent. Um, The downside, of course, are the upward pressures on housing, uh, congestion due to traffic, increased traffic, and of course, the rise in crime, by the way, some of which we're seeing all over the country. Yeah, exactly right. And and housing affordability is really the one issue that seems to be affecting almost every American in recent years. Is this something in your estimation that can even be sufficiently addressed at the municipal level? Or is it a bigger state federal problem? And, And if it can be addressed at the municipal level, what are some of the tools that are at your disposal? 
there are some tools at you know our disposal here at the local level. But let me just answer your first question. I think it's something that has to be addressed through all levels of government, uh, federal, state, and local, working together uh, to achieve uh, the opportunity around housing. I think also when you think about housing, we got to think about it regionally. Um, you know, cities used to compete against cities, saying we want the people. Um, but the reality is, is that housing is a regional challenge and one in which you must re- work regionally to address. There are some tools. Obviously, uh, we have tried a lot of them here in Denver. We can work uh, through zoning incentives, particularly with builders and developers to to build more housing. We can do it also through regulations, saying if you're going to have X number of uh, units in this development or this particular building, you must have some affordability built into it. Of course, we have uh, impact fees that we charge developers, and that those dollars go directly to uh, help uh, offset the cost of building more affordable housing. Uh, We can get in the game ourselves through bonding, uh, which we are doing uh, for the first time in Denver's history, as well as uh, having some cash available to incentivize our builders or to partner with them. So if they're doing over 30 30 units in a development, we can come in and say, we want to buy or partner with you to have uh, X number of units, 10% maybe incentivized, and we help to offset the cost of that affordability or those units. Again, partnering with the federal government through our our public housing authority, our PHAs that just about every state in the country has, um, helps us to also build affordability. Um, And then, of course, having a plan. And of course, that plan is to build in Denver is to build over the next 30 years near transit corridors and to do, do it in a density with density in mind. So go up and the, the, you can really impact people's ability and quality of life if you are focused on affordable, accessible housing near transit that is also affordable, allows people to get and to transact their lives, to get around the city and to do the things necessary without tremendous cost burden on them and their families. So I want to come back to some municipal issues, but but going kind of to your personal life for a little bit, you're actually not originally born in Colorado. You're you're from Texas originally. What maybe drew you to the state of Colorado? And, and in your mind, what is unique or special about Colorado, maybe compared to Texas or, or maybe just in general? Well, you know, I'm as close to a native as you can get, Jack. You're right about the fact I was not born in Denver or in the state of Colorado. I was born in Texas, but I came here as an infant. Um, my my twin sister and I, the youngest of 10 children, we were military family. And so dad's last assignment was Denver. And so they left Texas when we were just uh, 10 months old. And so, you know, I didn't make the decision to come. It was made for me <laughs> by my parents. But, you know, I, I I consider myself a Coloradoan. I'm proud of my Texas roots, but consider myself a Coloradoan, consider myself a Denverite. You know, I love this city. I love the state. And I think a lot of what draws people here is the diversity of opportunity in terms of your active lifestyle. Um, you can be in the city of Denver, but you can also be outside the city in, in the mountainous area within 30 minutes. It's that cool of, a, of an opportunity. Um, you can be active year round. People think Denver is a snowy, cold uh, city, but the reality is, is that we're pretty temperate here and, and seldomly are we below 30 degrees in Denver? Uh, and it, we often say here, blink and you'll see the change in, in weather. Um, and so you might miss something. Uh, today is going to be in the 70s in Denver, Colorado. But just two days ago, we were freezing. So it, it, that change in diversity in our weather patterns is pretty exciting to us. We can have a foot of snow tomorrow, but yet the next day, It'll be 60 degrees and you're outside in your sweater. So I think the active lifestyle to be able to live four seasons through four seasons and to be able to get out of the city into the mountains or in the mountains to the city within a matter of minutes is very attractive to all of us. 
being the mayor of one of the largest and iconic cities in the US is it's not just a job. It's it's your complete identity. It really is your entire life. Was there a, a moment that you can recall in your life when you knew you wanted to step into that scale of leadership? Uh, obviously, you're in the city council prior to becoming mayor. Was the goal the entire time to become mayor? Was there a specific moment since you were a child? Was this your path? Do you mind just kind of speaking through how you came to the understanding of, of wanting to take such an iconic position? Yeah, when I was 12 years old, Denver went through an election, mayoral election, and we elected a new mayor, uh, unseating an incumbent who had been there forever. So this guy had been mayor my entire life. And so I'd never uh, known anyone other than this this particular guy named Bill McNichols as our mayor. And when I was 12, they elected Federico Pena, who unseated Bill McNichols uh, in an unprecedented, unexpected fashion. First Hispanic mayor in Denver's history. And he was, you know, like a celebrity. I mean, like it, it was like we were amazed that this man of color had been elected mayor. He came to my school and I met him. And it was at that point that I, I, I was just enthralled with this uh, man's ability to move all of us uh, to excitement and energy. And I was fascinated by his job. And so uh, from that point forward, at the age of 12, 13, I started to study what leadership was all about and, and really uh, understand what the role of the mayor was. And I remember at 16, I did a news interview. I was spotlighted as a youth on the move in Denver on a local station here. They asked me, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be the first black mayor of Denver. And, you know, obviously I didn't become the first black mayor. Wellington Webb in 1991 was elected the first African-American mayor of Denver. But I grew up with the, the vision, hope and dreams that I would someday lead the city. You know, the thing about anything in life, whether it's a career, a passion, or even just another a person that you look at and you're you're fascinated with, the closer you get to it, sometimes that's the worst thing you can ever do. <laughs> uh, but I got into uh, city government by being elected to city council, to your point, in 2003. And I love being on city council. I loved uh, the role of representing the people and making things happen for the folks I represented. I uh, became president of city council. And at the time, the, the governor of Colorado decided not to run for re-election, Bill Ritter. And our current mayor, uh, John Hickenlooper, was widely seen as the most likely successor and would be the leading candidate if he chose to run. He did. And it was at that point that I had to make a decision. It's one thing to always aspire to do something. It's another to actually go do it. And uh, it was a tough decision because the impact on my family and on my life and my private life and, and really the process of becoming the mayor. But after nine months of contemplation and talking to a gazillion people and really uh, sitting down with my family, I decided I would run. And by the grace of God, in May of 2011, uh, the people of Denver elected me to be the 45th mayor of the city. And I've been serving since then. And it's been a real honor and privilege to serve in this position. There's I think no greater role in politics in this country outside of being the president of the United States than being a, a mayor. Was deciding to run for mayor the hardest decision in your life? It was a very difficult decision because you knew you, I knew my life would change. I knew the life of my family would change. Um, the, the, the impacts on such a decision. Um, and, and it's an, you know, it's an awesome role. You know, the reality is, is that there's only one mayor. <laughs> And that's a tremendous burden that you you play. And, um, you know, I did it. I was honored. I'm, I'm doing it. And I'm honored to play the role. But yes, it's a very, very uh, difficult decision to step into this bubble. And you'd mentioned kind of leadership styles earlier on. A lot of people say they wrote the book, but you actually did write the book, correct me if I'm wrong, on leadership. 
along with your, your co-author some years ago. If you could maybe sum up your style and philosophy in a minute or two, how would you go about doing that? One, I believe you have to have very strong self-awareness. You know, I think there are two types of leaders, either you're visionary or you're an implementer. And, you know, visionary is one who has a difficult time being involved in the day-to-day nuts and bolts, how things come together, how they work. You can see things that a lot of people can't see. You have broader vision. You typically are able to drive that vision, but you really need implementers to help um, make it happen. And implementers are those folks who are the op. They're usually your CFO, your COO, your, your chief of staff who are focused on the nuts and bolts, how mechanically things operate. I'm a visionary and, and I need implementers to work with on a daily basis. I can get down there, but I'm not a very effective implementer. Uh, I need people who, who make it happen, who pay attention to the crossing the I's and dotting the T's. So you got to be a visionary. You got to be able to uh, communicate effectively the vision. And I, I think that uh, that's something that I really work hard at. And uh, and then you got to be willing to step aside and let people lead. And I think, and you got to delegate. And that's what I do. So visionary, what type of leader? Self-awareness. Two, um, effective communication. And thirdly, delegation and, and allowing people to f- to fly and empowering them to, to fly. So those are things that I really think are, are important for me as a leader and really kind of, I think, put a stamp on my leadership style. Interesting. So going on that dichotomy between visionary and and implementer, when you're thinking about people that are going to be around you, maybe your chief of staff, maybe your CFO on a very regular basis that are going to be tasked with carrying out your bigger picture vision, basically going to be doing the dirty work. What are, how do you go about hiring for those types of people? What qualities do you look for? What are green flags, red flags? Yeah. What are are maybe some of the questions that you're asking yourself and, and that person to figure out if they are going to be a good fit for you? Yeah, I think one of the things I just talked about, do they have a strong self-awareness uh, of their their strengths and their weaknesses and, and recognizing that their weaknesses are not necessarily detriment or negative. It's just that's not what you're good at. And, and we all have them. And we I love people who acknowledge that that's not what I do. Um, but here's what I do that I'm really good at. Two, uh, people who are about people. Um, I, you don't, I like people who treat folks well. So a, a, a green flag with someone who carries compassion, who has firm compassion, willingness to uh, care for the people they work with and care for the people who work for them, but also willing to build boundaries uh, with those individuals and, and recognizing there are rules and there are protocols on how we operate and we're going to do it. And as long as we fly and do well together, uh, we're going to be okay. So uh, I look for folks with good, strong self-awareness and two people who have firm compassion in terms of how they lead their, their individuals. A red flag would be certainly someone who doesn't treat people well, who's very not self-aware, but also cannot find it in their in their heart, their minds to treat people with respect and dignity and, and more stuck on themselves. The third element that we look for is humility. You know, you can be great. I don't mean you got to tell me how great thou are. Let me determine that. But I like people who who step aside and give other people credit and let other people shine and don't have to feel threatened by the fact that you're talking about someone else and and how well someone else has done. Um, so those are just some of the things that I think are, are the things I look for when I bring people in. Yeah. And, and you've been mayor now for, I think, a little over a decade. As you think back to those earlier years when you were in office, what comes to mind? What do you see when you think about those earlier times? And if, are there any kind of lessons maybe or pieces of advice that you've, if you could go back, you'd give your earlier self? Yeah, I think slow down and recognize that you were elected and people don't expect you to build Rome overnight, even though maybe the media does, (laughs) you know, take your time. 
and build slowly and methodically and thoughtfully based on what is necessary for you to help your city thrive and to to, to fly. So I think the those are the things that have been, you know, I would slow down a little bit more and 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 you know, we've had to go back and rethink and redo, but if, if we had slowed down a little more, a little bit more thoughtful in terms of was expected of, I think we would have been much, I mean, we were okay, but it would have, would have helped a, a, a great deal. Um, secondly, I think don't ever forget why you're here. And I think not that I ever forgot why or who I'm here to serve, but sometimes when you get into it and you got people pulling at you and you got the media coming at you and stories are occurring, you know, what, what has anchored me was the times when I would sit down and remind myself and my team, the people brought us here, serve the people, keep your eye on the people and not on anything else. And at times you got to block out the noise. And I think with the advent of social media, it's sometimes it's tough for elected leaders to do that because you get into wanting to respond to that stuff. Um, but the best advice I can give myself and to any other elected official is cut out the noise, focus on why you're here. Don't ever forget your why. Absolutely. And, and I guess over the period of time that you have been mayor and, and learning and evolving compared to when you first initially began what has been maybe the most surprising thing that as a 15-year-old or, or even uh, later in your career in, in council, um, you probably didn't foresee about being mirror that's become evident? Well, it's, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's really fun. <laughs> you know, I, I, what I didn't know was one, how fun it would be. Uh, it, it, is, it is. I cannot explain to you in words. Sometimes the energy that I get just from the experiences of the people, the city, the experiences of just events and moments in the life of the city, and you live all of it. I mean, you are the you're on the lifeline of the city, and so very little gets past you. You cringe and you you feel bad when you hear about things happening in your city, and like murders and elements of crime, homelessness, people challenged economically, and you feel very focused and determined to address those issues. And then you feel you get to ride the highs of the city, the Broncos winning the Super Bowl, the Nuggets in the playoffs, the Avalanche possibly winning the, the, the cup, going after that big deal that brings something wonderful to the city, seeing you know an airline choose Denver to do a direct flight to Tokyo or to uh, Panama. I mean, those are great moments that, you know, I could, you, you just, you never really think about those things when you're running, you just want to represent, you want to make things happen. And then when they begin to happen, they are the, the energy, the exuberance, the, the, the sense of camaraderie for everybody in the city feels good. And, and like I said, when you have challenges, the same energy that goes into making those things that are so great about your city goes into solving those problems and those challenges. That to me is, is just a, it's an unbelievable sense of space that uh, it's hard to describe, but one in which I'm so honored and proud uh, and, and quite frankly, humbled to, to, to be the leader of helping to make hap- happen for my city. Obviously, there are, I guess, universal qualities that make a good mirror, right? Being empathetic to your earlier point, visionary and self-aware, having a tireless work ethic, being a campaigner. But there's also a real personal tie between any city and its mirror. So the next question, do you think a good mirror could be a good mirror anywhere? Or is a mirror built for a specific city and vice versa? I guess, in other words, if we transported you to, I don't know, Boston overnight, would you still be as successful as you have been? 
I think that your yeah, I think your premise. I had never thought about this, but now I think about it, and and some of the challenges that some cities have, and 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 opportunities, quite frankly, but also the culture and makeup of a city. I think a mayor is built for his or her city. I think obviously there are some skill sets that I think are transferable. Visionary being one of them, being or either one, either you're implementer or visionary, whatever it is, those skills are transferable to any city. But I think the culture, the the DNA of a mayor. I think is built around their city. And I, I see that with a lot of the mayors and friends that I have around the country who are serving as mayors, their cities and the uniqueness of their city. Uh, that mayor, you know, whether it's in Miami with Mayor Suarez or Mayor, I mean, Mayor Turner down in Houston or Mayor Jones up in St. Louis, Mayor Garcetti in LA, they're made for their cities. That, that's who they are. I mean, the, the the DNA of those cities is different than Denver. You can't look at Mayor Garcetti and go, he would be a Denver mayor, although I think he'd be successful. I think, quite frankly, he is made to be an L.A. mayor. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I am, without question, a quintessential Denver mayor. My spirit and everything in me, the DNA I have is very much Denver. Uh, yeah, I love that answer. And continuing the, the last question, maybe before we jump over to, to more general Denver issues. In 2020, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you issued your first veto specifically on the repeal of um, the ban of pit bulls. So I guess, why did it take you so long maybe to use your veto powers and, and what went through your mind in the decision-making process there? Well, one of the things that I think happened in 2011 when I got elected mayor was my opponent said he was going to come into city hall and throw some elbows. And he said, some things have got to change. We've got to break some things in order to fix it. And I think the people of Denver looked at that and said, that's not who we are in Denver. We, we're collaborative. We try to work toward an end. And then you use the tools that you have available when that doesn't work. But you always start from a position of collaboration and problem solving. And, and that's where I do in terms, that's what we do in terms of legislation. You mentioned earlier, I come from city council. Uh, it doesn't have, I didn't come in and it doesn't have to be a, an objectionable mentality a contrary a, a contrarian type position between council or the mayor and the, the the legislative branch we don't have to do that we don't always agree in fact we often start by not agreeing but we work toward a solution and so up until that first veto uh, i think we have been pretty successful of either stopping legislation that was coming forward that we wouldn't agree with or working out the kinks to where we get a point to a place where we can be we can accept the piece of legislation as we have modified it to to make it work for the city this was just the the pitbull legislation was one that historically had been tough having grown up in this city it was tough for me knowing, you know, when I was in the 80s, I was we were watching story after story after story about pit bulls attacking children, um, particularly attacking people, particularly young children. Um, it just I had a hard time with I couldn't live with myself if I signed this bill and then something were to happen in our city uh, that, again, based on the legalization of uh, uh, bringing pit bulls back into our community. So that was a difficult one. And because I have a tremendous respect for its author and and sponsor Councilman Chris Hernan. He's a friend, but he's also someone who I have tremendous respect for the work that he does. We just didn't agree. And, and, and um, you know, the people changed the rule ultimately, but I simply couldn't put my finger on the uh, our signature on the bill. You, um, you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, one of those challenges of growth being specifically around public safety and, and crime. And obviously policing has been one of the uh, most talked about subjects in the past couple of years in the US for for good reason. When you think about the future of public safety and policing within Denver, 
what does that look like? Does it look substantially different than what we have today? Or maybe is it just a, a couple of tweaks around the edges? No, I think it is looking different. I think one, um, the philosophy and value of firm compassion matters. You start with compassion for all people and even those who find themselves in trouble with the law, um, humanity and respect for the people who are on the streets, um, law and order, law and order for everyone, including the men and women who wear the badge, who are sworn to protect and have an awesome responsibility to keep the public safe, but also to respect and, and to treat people like human beings, even when they don't act like they deserve to be treated as such. Um and, and so I think there, there are a couple layers here. One is different type of officers and the training of officers are occurring. The, the real value of de-escalation is real and people expect that you will do everything you can to de-escalate situations first. Two, that less lethal means um, to deal with people as much as possible are important. Um, and so I think the type of men, men and women who are being asked and who will be considered for law enforcement is changing Two, people want better policing. And, and that means um, different responses, alternative responses to crime. Not everything requires a gun and a badge uh, to deal with. And so alternative policing, such as, you know, the co-responder programs or the start program here in Denver, star program here in Denver, excuse me, um, are going to be real where you have people who are non Law enforcement responding to people who may be in crises, but not a danger to themselves or others, uh, critically important. And, and, and thirdly, you know, really just a more, um, you know, awareness in terms of expectations. I mean, everybody has a camera on them these days. And the expectation is when you show up as, as a law enforcement or whatever, you're expected to act with uh, dignity and respect, protecting yourself as well as the public. A kind of a, a tangential question. How do you personally decide when to, I guess, get your fingers in the pie and and make specific decisions uh, around very specific topics? And on the kind of flip side, when do you put your hands up and say, hey, as the mayor, I personally don't have the expertise to make decisions around this, around, I don't know, what a road looks like or where a stop sign should be placed. And, and I think this is really the, the key challenge around delegation is knowing when to, to take ownership over a process and, and when to have the trust in your team to, to make those decisions. So how do you go about that decision-making process on a kind of issue by issue, topic by topic basis? Yeah, well, we talked about self-awareness and I think one of the hallmarks of a leader is really recognizing I don't have to control everything. I don't have to be the, in fact, I'm not the smartest one in the room. If I am, I'm in a lot, we're all in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so, so the reality is, is that you acknowledge that a good leader acknowledges uh, has a strong sense of awareness, builds a team that complements his or her talents, and delegates accordingly to get the job done. And when I sit down in a room, there are some very highly skilled, very intelligent, well-paid people sitting around that table, and I expect them to lean in. I expect them to give me their opinions on things. I expect them to be able to bring their expertise and talent to the table because I'm limited. I'm a visionary. I'm generalist. And my goal is to coordinate, facilitate, to, to kind of help marshal all of us to the right uh, direction and right vision. So, you know, it's not that difficult for me to, to delegate or to expect that people will take on their roles. And, and you have to be willing to say, that's not my lane. And when you start feeling uncomfortable, I say it, that's, that's not me. I need you. Uh, you give me some guidance or what do you think and call on people, empowering people uh, at the table to answer questions, to lean in. I think COVID was the perfect example of this. We were successful as a city. I had tremendous, very smart public health people around me. And I oftentimes would say, 
I'll make the last call, but you have to advise me. And and I do not mind making the tough decision, um, but I got to know that I'm fully equipped to make that decision. And what that means is you're going to be the one who brings the information, the data, and you're going to be the one, you'll have to be the one who guides me. And they were phenomenal in doing just that. And I think as a result, we made great teamwork and great, you know, good decisions as best we could based on the data that we had. Before we uh, before we hit record, we were speaking about spirituality, being that it's it's Easter weekend, it's Passover, and as you informed me, uh, Ramadan, you have a let's say a deeply spiritual background, a religious background within the the Baptist Church that you're informing me about. How does that influence your role as mayor, if it does in any way? Oh, every day I don't get out of the bed before saying a prayer of for guidance and wisdom, courage, humility for the day and to remove myself and to allow you know, the spirit to, to come through me in, in the direction he wants me to lead. And I don't go to sleep without doing the same. So it's everything that I do. Uh, I'm in this position, no doubt whatsoever. There was nothing about me that says that as I grew up from a very difficult upbringing, challenged economically as a family, that says I could be mayor. And I recognize I've arrived at this moment with this blessing uh, because of the anointing of, of, of Christ in my life. So it's, it's everything in me and everything that I do. And it's in during those very difficult moments where I see, you know, my faith shine even brighter. It's also doing those exuberance, those exciting, wonderful moments that I pray for humility and, and to recognize that it's, it's just bigger than me and always will be. Or uh, just uh, before we hit our closing question, if you were, and, and maybe this is when you're still in office, maybe it's after you're in office, but if we look forward 10, 15, 20 years, how is life different for the average I don't know, Denverite than it is today? What does that grand picture vision look like? And do you think it's possible to ever actually get there? Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I think Denver's best and brightest opportunity lies, obviously, and continues to lie in its people. And it will be going forward. And I think the We've got to continue to innovate and to bring in people who drive innovation. Um, and it's not saying that the people here don't drive innovation, but I think the, as you mix the the long-term resident with the newcomers, um, innovation has to continue to evolve. And I think that's critically important. But we also have to evolve to the 21st century expectation and demand. People are not looking to be in traffic congestion. They're looking to be able to to move on public purveyor systems, to move them about, to get them out of congestion and make help them to be more productive, create the virtual opportunities. We have to evolve. And so streets have to become more than just for automobiles. They have to be shared with bicyclists, transit, pedestrians. Um, otherwise, we're going to have gridlock in this city and nobody wants to live around that. And, and, and thirdly, I think we have to focus on our climate. And I think part of what I just said in terms of evolving regarding mobility is going to be critically important, but also just getting smarter with regards to our use of clean energy, really greatly and dramatically reducing our carbon footprint, doing the things necessary to do just that. Denver has always, uh, our Denver is a great city because we have always skated where the puck is going, not where the puck is. I, I think if Denver continues to do that and maintains the value of always going where that puck is going, Stand ahead of the game. Denver, 10 to 15 years from now, will continue, will grow, only grow in its global footprint and global prominence. Fantastic. So we have a, uh, a traditional closing question here on City Hall Stories. It's super simple. Very curious to hear your thoughts. What is one accepted truth of local government, Mayor Hancock, that you think is incorrect? 
Oh, that, uh, you know, people see it as kind of the lowest uh, on the totem pole. Um, but reality, local government cities represent over 90% of the GDP of this nation. And if they are not strong, if they don't recover from economic slowdowns, if cities and municipal governments don't continue to thrive, this nation doesn't thrive. We are the heart and soul of this country. And so mayors are critically important. City councils are critically important. County commissioners are critically important to to drive the economy and the social, cultural, educational uh, prominence of this nation. So, you know, this nation's great because of the cities. You go to London, go to France, go to Africa, go to Mexico. You see the brimmings of a great nation. They're all in, in the United States. All those pieces are here and they're represented in the heart of our cities and, and, and the leadership of our cities, most diverse levels of government. Um, so it, it's without question. That's the misnomer. We're not the lowest on the totem pole. We are the totem pole. People need to recognize that cities matter in this nation. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I think today has been a fascinating conversation with one of the most introspective and, and to use your word, visionary local government leaders in the US. Really enjoyed touching on the personal aspects of leadership and growth. And, and of course, hearing about the exciting future for the city of Denver. So Mir Hancock, uh, massive appreciation for your time today. Thank you. Jack, thank you for having me. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.